On today's episode of The Door Report, powered by Alaco Finewood Floors, we're joined by Riley Lachance, former Vanderbilt sharpshooter from 2014 to 2018. He played under both Kevin Stallings and Bryce Drew, so he was able to compare his experiences with the two coaches, but he also gave us an inside look in the life of a former college basketball player playing overseas professionally. Plus, he gave us an update with where he's at in his career playing in Birmingham for the New Orleans Pelicans G League affiliate. Takes us down memory lane as he looks back at his favorite games in the black and gold, his game winner against Mississippi State, his thoughts on Coach Stackhouse and the trajectory of Vanderbilt basketball, and lastly, what it's going to take to bring Memorial Magic all the way back. We've got all that and much more coming right up here on The Door Report, powered by Alaco Finewood Floors. Let's ride. At Vanderbilt, it's Tim Corbin in the Vandy Boys, Jerry Stackhouse on the hardwood, and Clark Lee on the gridiron. Nashville, it's time to sit back, relax, grab a cold one, and enjoy the show. The Music City is our state, and West End is where we rock. You're listening to The Door Report, the premier Vanderbilt podcast for fans who bleed black and gold. Commodore Nation. Anchor down. No strings till the hank comes out. Make all the drunk girls scream and shout. We love it, we hate it. We're all just trying to make it in this crazy town. Welcome into the door report. It is episode 144. It is February 14th, 2022. We are powered by Alaco Finewood Floors. And, Will, we've got a loss to recap in Knoxville on Saturday night. I think there was there was a little bit of hype. I'm not going to say that it was a ton of expectation heading into it that Vanderbilt would get the win, but they fought. They came back from down 16. We'll recap that game. But, Will, we've got a few other notes. Uh, the Bills have hired Kyle Shermer. Uh, he's already uh, getting into the coaching ranks. And uh, we've got Vandy Boys opening weekend series this weekend against Oklahoma State. Uh, we'll touch on the new basketball locker rooms uh, being unveiled as well. But, uh, Will, another loss to recap, and it doesn't get much easier on Wednesday night at Auburn in the jungle. <laughs> no, you've got number five, Ken Palm ranked Auburn coming in after facing number 10, Ken Palm ranked Tennessee previously. Uh, this isn't even something because we'll get into the actual game, but it's mm-hmm. funny when you look at all the rankings and everything. It's Vanderbilt lost to Tennessee by nine, 73 to 64. They actually moved up in the Ken Palm ranking. So they went from, I think you wrote you down, they were 81st on the previous podcast. By yeah. the time we were recording, they were 80th, and now they're sitting at 77th. So they, this isn't surprising. a bad loss. And I want to get into this before we have our criticisms and before we dig into the things that went wrong in Knoxville. Is everyone keep in mind, Vanderbilt was an 11, 11 and a half point underdog. They covered. They actually they performed covered. better than Vegas's expectations and the money's expectations. So we, we get in this mindset of like all games are created equal and all wins and losses are created equal, and that's just not the case. I mean, th- this game against Tennessee and this game against Auburn, even if they are both losses, have nothing to do with what we talked about last podcast where mm-hmm. this team has a chance to do something special and make a run here at the end after 
this Auburn yes. game. Now the yes. Tennessee and Auburn games were just extra. Those yeah. were like would have been, you know, the cherry I, on top. Yeah. But, but if, here we are. If they were to find a way to beat Tennessee, I think we'd be talking a lot differently right now. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, as now you go into Auburn and, and Tennessee's a really good team. They're playing hot right now. We'll recap all of that. But we'll coming up towards the end here. We're going to be joined by Riley Lachance, the former sharpshooter, played at Vanderbilt from 2014 to 2018. I actually said is hilarious. So if you if you stay tuned for the interview, I actually said he scored 14,000 points uh, in his career. So uh, he would be yeah, by if far. We, if we actually ever start releasing the videos of that, like that that part would be funny to draw attention to because when you <laughs> said it, like I thought I misheard you. So I like gave a look at the camera. I was like, wait a second. But then by the time I was like 14,000, that's just uh, way it, too much to score. I was like, Scotty Pippen Jr. just scored a thousand. I was like, <laughs> but you know, Locally, I didn't Riley correct you because I was like, Billy, Billy doesn't make mistakes. So I'm not going to correct him. <laughs> no, Riley, they both let it slide. But uh, Riley Lachance, he's actually at 1,400, uh, right, a little bit over 1,400 points throughout his just career. Pitiful, pitiful career. Awful. There. Only 1,400, <laughs> not 14,000. Yeah, yeah. Not, not, not in the, nowhere in the record books of Vanderbilt, but he is. He's in several record books at Vanderbilt, and we'll be joined by him a little bit later. But well, before we get to the breaking news, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at door underscore report and Instagram door dot report. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our podcast is available on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcast. And while you're at it, give our podcast five stars and a review on iTunes. All right, let's get to the breaking news. No matter what style you're going for, you can trust your flooring job to a Laco Fine Wood Floors. Take a walk through the woods in your home every day. Get your flooring job started today by calling 615-356-0303. A Laco Fine Wood Floors. Craftsmanship you can stand on. All right, well, let's start with a little bit of football. I don't think people expected us to be talking football uh, to begin this episode, but there was a, a piece of news I had to get to. I had to throw it in here because he his name is Kyle Shermer, and he's been hired by the Buffalo Bills as uh, their defensive quality control coach. So he's switching over, the, over to the defensive side of the ball. That was according to ESPN's Field Yates. Of course, he's the son of uh, Pat, Pat Shermer, who was the most recent, uh, most recently the quarterback's coach for the Broncos uh, this past season. Uh, of course, Will, out of college, signed with the Chiefs in 2018 after he went undrafted. Uh, he also played for the Bengals uh, and the Washington football team in 2021. Uh, but, Will, good for him. I mean, I, I'm not really surprised he's getting into the coaching ranks right now. Uh, I think he could potentially be a really good coach. It runs in the blood. Uh, I don't know if we thought his playing career would even last as long as it did in the NFL but credit to him for staying in the league and now he's got a job uh, in Buffalo so I'm not surprised but it'll be interesting to kind of track his career as a coach uh, because this is a nice little step I mean you're starting in the NFL I mean he's only 25 and he's getting hired as the defensive you know analyst but really that's just getting in there basically Mm -hmm. an intern I would almost say or those defensive analysts foot in the door you start learning from experienced coaches around you and kind of when you have ideas he's he was a quarterback so he probably can come Mm -hmm. from a different perspective on the defensive side of the football but the only little note that as to a connection because Chris Shermer bounced around I think it was in order the Bengals the Chiefs and he was most recently with the Washington football team who I think what is the commanders yeah, is that the right, Billy? The Washington Commanders. The awful, Commanders. Awful, terrible <laughs> name. But, but 
their head coach of the Buffalo Bills, Sean McDermott, actually went to the same high school in right. in Philadelphia or outside of Pennsylvania and LaSalle that, mm-hmm. that Kyle Shermer went to. So that that's the connection there as to how he might have gotten his foot in the door. And obviously coming from the bloodline of his father being former head coach Pat Shermer. So that that helps there. Uh, he's, Shermer he's got has the, a little he's got bit of a connection in the coaching ranks. And man, <laughs> there's a guy, if there's a guy that went through probably the most grueling program to lead out of Oof. I don't, I don't want to say the depths of hell and be dramatic, but I mean, at the beginning, it was about at the low point outside of maybe this past season and the two previous seasons that it has been at, and that mm-hmm. is saying a lot. And he led them to three straight years of success under yep. Derek Mason, and that was a conglomeration of a lot of different pieces of talent. But, man, Shermer certainly showed something to me, and I fully expect him. You know, We'll be hearing yeah. his name at a yeah. much higher-ranking position relatively I, soon. I think we will. It'll be fun to see if he gets to coach with his dad eventually some mm-hmm. uh, someday as, as well. And, and he's always had the brains, Will. He's always had the brains. Of course, not the best feet in the pocket, but he could really sling that ball. Uh, but, Will, I, I think you could – if for Vanderbilt fans, you know, Coach Mason, we've said this a lot, a lot, but he should be thanking Kyle Shermer every day and twice on Sunday for everything he was able to do during his tenure there for that offense and for that program, uh, getting to two bowl games, I think. Uh, Shermer got to two, uh, three, got to three. Three, it was uh, three straight, remember? Shermer got 2016 to th- through 2018. Three straight and then, uh, bowl Riley games. Riley Neal was quarterback. Yep, with the Riley Neal stepped in. Let's come and paint me years that didn't yeah. go so great. Didn't go so well. I think uh, Mason would have liked Shermer back there for a fifth year maybe. But, uh, I think we all, we all would have liked Shermer back. <laughs> but he came back and coached a little bit, I think, as a volunteer, I think, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, uh, at least one year I think it, it was either under Mason's last year and then um, you know I don't think he was on the staff for, for coach Lee but and nonetheless Kyle Shermer is not in sure the, he brought is, that up in the job not sure he brought that one no up I, I don't think he brought that one up <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he has headed he is headed to Buffalo as the defensive quality control coach so congrats to Sherm well we've also got uh, some news across the basketball program the new basketball locker room now this isn't nec- it's new but uh, this was uh, this was built. Uh, I'm not sure exactly sure when it was finalized, but I have a feeling they've played a majority of the season in that locker room. I said um, unveiled. Unveiled. Is how I titled it here yes. on our list is this unveiled publicly. Yes, unveiled publicly, and it was it was bro- it was broken to the public eye. It looks awesome. I mean, it, it looks clean. It looks it looks way different than anything they've had. And this is a step. Riley actually touched on it. He, he said he saw the videos and the pictures of the locker room. Well, this makes an impact. This makes an impact not only with the guys on the team right now, but Coach Stackhouse and his ability to recruit. Because players 16, 17, 18 years old, they like that stuff. I mean, it, you're a young kid. You walk into that facility, and I think your eyes will pop. They've got an NBA wall. They've got a barber shop. They've got some different added incentives for these recruits now that I think will make a difference. And, you know, I mean, heck, Will, I don't know if Noah Shelby and Lee Dort have been in there yet, but I guarantee you this will help Stackhouse. Now, we talk, we like to talk about ancillary things. Obviously, winning is the solution. It cures everything. But this is another one of those ancillary things that, hey, this is what most of the SEC has. You look at Kentucky, Auburn, Tennessee, they've got it. So, Will, I, I know when I saw this video, I did not expect that. But when I saw it, I was like, okay, this is the step they need. And, I mean, you got a barbershop, Will. There shouldn't be any bad hair days there. <laughs> yeah, chicken and the egg, Billy. We always say that's the tough part is you have to bring in good recruits to win. And you have to win, you have to bring in good recruits and a recruits drawn in to the overall fan base and the overall winning culture they drawn in to facilities. And I think it's really a combination of both. And this this basketball facility is not the case here. This is up there top class with mm-hmm. 
any yep. any program in the, in the country. country. I mean, yeah. Vanderbilt's basketball facilities, as they continue to upgrade and make improvements to Memorial Gym and continue to do thring, things through Van United. And Memorial Gym is not finished, in my opinion. They've done some great things, but it is still pretty old. And there's still plenty of things across that across the gymnasium that can be done to improve it. But this is the facilities and the things that Vanderbilt has to recruit with are not a hindrance. And that's mm-hmm. what we always say in football is obviously but baseball and basketball are different because they're not so far behind. They're a little bit behind. They're not so far behind. In football, where they did this locker room upgrade, which, you know, it's it's a lot bigger of a project because you right. have a lot more guys on the roster and you can work on the little details yeah. a little bit more with, with basketball because, you, you know, you've only got 15 guys, so it's a little <laughs> bit easier. But football just needs to get to the point that they can say, okay, this is what we have. You know, it's not the best facilities mm-hmm. in the country, but they're right there. These are top tier facilities. You're not going to sit there in front of a hundred thousand seat stadium. And you're not going to have the, this, this locker room and it like LSU's that you have these pods right. that are gigantic, basically Recliners. offices for each player. But these are really nice facilities. What they have done in these locker rooms is really, really nice. And it's, it's, if you weren't in the sec, you'd be saying these are top two or three in the conference, but we are in the sec. So the football locker room is still probably the worst in the conference or, or right there in the bottom two or three, but this basketball facility that can help them go to the next level. This is next tier and Vanderbilt's gym is already considered when it is in, in a good spot with the program, one of the top probably 15 sites in all of college yep. basketball when that gym is really going because the, because of the unique nature of Memorial mm-hmm. Gym. So they have potential to be a sleeping giant here. And I say a sleeping giant, even though they only won the SEC 10 years ago. That's not really exactly <laughs> a sleeping giant to say that since they've already won the SEC in the, most, in the past decade. Right. But you've got this class coming in. You've got a little bit of momentum building this year, Billy. And that's why I'm excited, even with this Auburn game coming up. Just a late push, a little bit of national recognition, Scotty Pippen Jr. Mm-hmm. staying on that national stage, and then you bring in the stars next yes. year of this class, and you finally got Vanderbilt trending in the right direction, which it feels like we're on that that upward trajectory, which it's it's been a lot of downward trajectory and a lot of plateauing, and finally maybe you're kicking up in that right yep. direction you want to be headed in. Yeah, well, in the facilities arms race, especially with the locker room, Vanderbilt is up at the top. You know, I mean, you could say that with the gym that they've already been up there, but they haven't been winning as much to kind of help that. So with the facilities, arms race, talk about it with football a lot. Obviously, Vanderbilt's nowhere in contention there, but in basketball, they're there. So this is, is, you know, this isn't some monumental step, but this is a, this is a nice step. And it's going to, it's going to work really well with the timing of this recruiting class coming in next season, and then maybe build some momentum with the next class. So uh, I thought that was a really, really cool production too. And the video was cool the way they laid it out. So uh, the NBA wall was actually cool. We posted that picture of it. Uh, I think some guys were left out. We had a guy comment on us uh, about our thoughts on uh, some of the guys that were left out, but you know, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later, but we'll, uh, we have baseball this weekend. Yeah, we've got the Vandy boys opening weekend. I think it's kind of snuck up on us a little bit, uh, but it's starting. It, it starts early. Ba- college baseball starts early. I, I know softball has been going on for the last couple of weeks, but Tim Corbin, interesting note here, Will, he's entering his 20th season, which to me, I didn't realize before I saw that. I mean, he's, he's been here for 20 years. He's entering his 20th season at, uh, at the Hawk. He said he'll nail down this weekend starting rotation either tomorrow morning or early Wednesday. He also said, Will, there's still 
a lot of position competitions going on. And the best way to settle those is by playing other teams and, you know, gaining that, that experience within these guys. He said the right side of the infield with Tate Colwick and even Davis Diaz, they might be rotating there at first and second base. But I think Carter Young is locked up short. Uh, Parker Nolan is locked up third. I think Dominic Keegan's going to be catching, uh, by the way. So that should be interesting. But, Will, I know you were interested by one of the pitching notes, and I was as well. But Nick Maldonado is expected to start games this this season. That's what we're, we're hearing. Uh, now, who knows when? He, he may not start this weekend. Who knows? But I thought that was interesting, Will, because he played a lot of uh, re- uh, games in relief last season. So for him to to get that starting night, I think that says something about his work in the offseason and and – you know, I mean, he's one of their better guys. So for him to be moved into that starting role, I think is is pretty noteworthy. Yeah, I, I want to give credit to Aria Gerson. Um, yep. I'm reading straight off this Tennessee article. So this is a quote from Tim Corbin about, about Maldonado mm-hmm. possibly changing over from his all SEC closer role yep. into the starting rotation here. But from Corbin, end quote, we were thinking about it, at least when he decided to come back to school here because of his pick, pitch package and what we think he's capable of doing. We wanted to put him in more of a starter position, Corbin said, end quote again. So he's trained in that position right now. The volume's built up, so we will likely start him. So that sounds mm-hmm. like he's going to be in yeah. the starting rotation, at least early in some capacity. And this Oklahoma State, it does sneak up on you. You really don't pay much attention to baseball, or at least I don't. I keep up with wins and losses, but until SEC play starts. Mm-hmm. But you have an interesting matchup here early with Oklahoma State. And I'm not saying I dug into Oklahoma State's returning roster and how good they're going to be this year. But I know just looking them up before the podcast that they were 36 and 19 last year yeah. coming out of a big, a really big good. program, a power five conference program. Mm-hmm. So This could be an interesting matchup early because Vanderbilt really doesn't play another name until they play Michigan on March 15th. So you've got Mm -hmm. a month in between this opening series, opening weekend series against Oklahoma State, and then you have a lot of the tune-up games. And and then you play Michigan, and then you start picking up and building more more momentum as college basketball season winds down and we go into the dog days of summer, the dog days. which Vander, Vanderbilt baseball dominates here on the podcast during <laughs> the dog days of summer, but when we don't have any football to talk about. So, uh, but excited for this season. And this is a pretty interesting challenge here early. Yes, it is. Well, they kind of, because Tim Corbin likes to test things out early. He does. I want everyone to not freak out because every year, every single year, they drop a couple games early and everybody's freaking out about what's wrong with this and what's wrong with that. Corbin is going to try some odd things early. He's going to try some different rotations, guys at different positions, putting in guys in relief when he otherwise wouldn't. So just take a chill pill. (laughs) I promise at the end of the season, I trust Tim Corbin, the only coach at Vanderbilt that I implicitly just say he knows what he's doing. (laughs) And if you're a Vanderbilt fan and you don't implicitly say Tim Corbin, just hands off. And and if he does it for two or three years in a row, you say, what the hell are you doing, Corbin? (laughs) But he hasn't done that yet, and like you said, it's been 20 years. So everybody take a chill pill early because yep. they're probably going to drop a couple games that we say, what the hell is going on? But then we have to take a step back and say, I bet they'll be in, in the yeah. right, uh, playing the right type of baseball there towards the end of the, yes. uh, towards the end of SEC play. But they'll be geared up yeah. in, time and, for, in time for the postseason. And Corbs, we trust. I think all Vandy fans yep. should be saying that, Will. <laughs> uh, but, Will, two notes here. According, I, look, I was looking at some of the odds on Barstool Sportsbook. Vandy is plus 1,300 to win the College World Series. And the team they're facing in like Nashville that. is Oklahoma State. They're plus 900. 
So, I mean, those okay. are so my, my previous research was not too far off. They are no, a good team. No, they're a, they're a really good team. Very, very good team. Really good team. So this matchup should be fun to watch. If you're a baseball fan in Nashville, you need to head over to the Hawk uh, this weekend because I know there's still college hoops going on, but if you're a baseball fan in this area, in the Nashville area, you got to head over there because it's two really good teams going at it. And will I think for this season, there are a lot of unknowns, but you've also got a ton of guys coming back from last year's College World Series championship. Uh, who, and I mean, they, they lost to Mississippi State, but that, you got to believe, gave them a lot of good experience. And we'll get into baseball. We'll get into all the baseball notes, of course, uh, when we get into the meat of the season. But it's always good to kind of feel like baseball's coming. It, it's, it's on the horizon. And almost like winter is coming from the Game of Thrones, Will. Mm-hmm. Tim Corbin is coming. The Vandy boys are coming soon. And uh, we're, up, I mean, almost three days away now from, from this weekend. So uh, we'll, we'll be uh, previewing that and recapping, of course, what happens uh, this weekend. But, Will, we've got basketball to get to now. Tennessee defeats Vanderbilt 73-64. to 64. The Vols are now 18-6 and six overall, 9-3 and three in the SEC. I think they've won. They're hot right now. I don't know how many games they've won in a row. I know they went 2-0 and oh in the past two weeks over SEC teams. Uh, Vander, Vanderbilt now 13-11, 5-7 in the SEC. Well, Scottie Pippen had a great game, uh, 23 points. He didn't shoot well from deep. He was 0-2. Uh, he did have six assists, so he was working. But we talked about this, Will. The only other guy that that you know had a, a solid game was Miles Studio, seventeen points, five threes, and then you had I think Chapman had eleven. Uh, but from from my perspective, watching this game, will they only had seven bench points? Tennessee had thirty six. So Vanderbilt's bench did not do much at all. They haven't done much all season. I'm not saying that's as a surprise, but the rebounding edge was also noteworthy to me. Tennessee had fifteen offensive rebounds, while Vandy had four. And you're just not going to win many games, giving up that many offensive rebounds and that many second chance opportunities. And they battled back. I'll give them credit, Will. They, they battled. They fought all the way back from, I think they're down 16 in the second half. They made a big, huge run to get back in the game. They made a lot of big shots. Miles Studi, he had some fireworks with, with him talking trash to, to Tennessee. So, Will, the passion is there. The energy's there. This team wants it. I mean, they, they wanted that win more than anyone. And the effort is there. I don't think that's a problem. But right now, Tennessee is a better team. They're a better team, and that's I think that's obvious, but they make winning plays. And, and I don't think Vanderbilt's in a, in a position yet to – I'm not saying they can't beat Tennessee, but in these types of games, you've got to come together as a team and, and, and make those plays. This isn't just one guy, but Tennessee as a group, they make those winning plays, and they've got, they've got depth. They, they've got a lot of depth. and they've got, I mean, their ninth, tenth guy you know, is, is scoring double figures every other night. So they've got depth there that they can work with. Uh, Will Liam Robbins played 12 minutes. He's still getting getting into basketball shape, of course, and we talked about that. Uh, I thought another noteworthy stat, Will, QMB had zero points. He didn't attempt a single shot. Uh, that, that's, I think, seeing that after the game, if you didn't, if you erase the score, Vandy probably didn't win. You know, if QFB is not producing down there in the paint, it's going to be tough for this team, I think, to win. A lot of stuff to get to in this game, Will, but for me – one was the rebounding edge, and Vanderbilt didn't have enough points from their bench. And I'm just not saying that hasn't happened. That's happened a lot this season, but that was kind of the key, and that was the killer. So it, it, Tennessee, I think they scored the last eight points there uh, after Vanderbilt uh, got closer there towards the end. But uh, that, that was kind of the, my initial recap of that game. Yeah, I mean, you hit on <clears throat> pretty much every key stat that there is, but the one I want to hit on that was this was the reason. It, it wasn't shooting this time around. It wasn't turnovers this time around. It wasn't 
missed opportunities, it was rebounding. This team failed to rebound well against Tennessee, and Tennessee has some good size inside. But with Re- Liam Robbins being able to play 12 minutes, QMB played 22, Taron Frank, I think, played 14. Yep. This team should not have been rebounded on the offensive glass 15-4. to four. And they were at an overall rebounding disadvantage of Tennessee at 41 overall rebounds. Vanderbilt had 31. Vanderbilt shot a better percentage from the three-point line. They shot mm-hmm. 37%. Tennessee shot 31%. Vanderbilt shot better from the field overall. Vanderbilt shot almost 41%, 40.8%. Tennessee shot 36.7%. And Vanderbilt shot about the same from the free throw line. Vanderbilt shot about 70%. Tennessee shot about 70%. Vanderbilt had four more turnovers than Tennessee. They had 13 versus Tennessee's nine. But Tennessee Vanderbilt committed a lot more fouls. Some of that is at the end. Mm-hmm. But there was A, the rebounds. You're not going to win when you're constantly giving up second chance points to a team that is already better than you and just undeniably this season tennessee is a better basketball team than vanderbilt if every single metric you can use to measure where it's human polls or it's analytic rankings tennessee's better and vanderbilt played better really in all honesty they had some turnovers they had some stretches which i want to get to here talking about this that that seemed to absolutely haunt this team of stretches of getting hot and then stretches of not being able to buy a bucket but rebounding one and then the stretch I want to get to where it's in the second half. And you mentioned this team was able to battle back. Mm-hmm. They went into the second half. They were, I believe, down 12. They were down 44 to 32 to Tennessee at halftime. Yep. Yep. They'd been pretty much dominated in that first half. Tennessee came out and really dominated them to start the half. I think it was about 17 minutes left to go in the second half. Tennessee went up 50 to 34 and had their largest lead at 16 points. Then Vanderbilt battled back. They were able to draw within, I think, one on a Scottie Pippen Jr. jumper. It was 52 to 51 with 11 minutes and 34 seconds left. And then this is where the negative side of the stretch, because right there you had Vanderbilt get hot. Tennessee couldn't buy a bucket. Tennessee didn't score from that entire time. 16-0 run, uh, 17-0 run actually is, is what it is here. But then Tennessee, after Vanderbilt did that, at the 11 minute mark at the... Let me get it here. Sorry, I'm having to do this on the fly because we had the interview with Riley at the three-minute mark. Tennessee led 69 to 52. Or not 69 to 59. 59, 59. good grief. There we go. It's a long day, Billy, but at the (laughs) three-minute mark. So you had that stretch where Vanderbilt was able to close that gap and go on that 17-point run. And then basically the same thing on the other side. They, They just went completely ice cold on offense. Some of that was foul trouble. Some of that was Tennessee really just putting their guys back in the game. And some of that was Stackhouse. I know this is probably something you want to get into, Billy. I know the Door Report group is talking about it. Yep. But Stackhouse's rotations and player usage, they're just too many times that Stackhouse uses lineups that you say outside of this one player out on the court right now, where is the offense going to come from? And, and there's stretches that it's not just one or two minutes that way where you're buying some time for a guy like Studi or Pippen that's in foul trouble or needs some rest. It'll be six, seven, eight-minute stretches where the only scoring option you have on the court is Jordan Wright, or the only scoring option you have on the court is really Scottie Pippen. Alongside him will be Taron Frank, Shane Dezoni, Tyron Lawrence. And you're like, these are not guys that are going to be able to create offense on their own. These are guys you can have one or two of these max on the court and stack will have four on the court at a time. And that is really when you see these stretches plague this team, is when you have these lineups on the court that just don't have any offensive output potential, especially when a guy like Chapman, was just off this game. He just couldn't yep. buy a bucket. Mm-hmm. And and when you're missing that from that guy, you have to adjust your lineups. You can't use the same game plan when Chapman's been on the last two games 
and now he's missing shots because he can't be the secondary scoring option because he's not a great, really honestly, just a great scorer. When he's not hitting shots, he's a good facilitator, but he's not a great scorer when he's not hitting those outside jumpers. So yeah. there were a lot of times in that game, Billy, when I know me and you were frustrated by the lineup usage by Sack. Yes, I had a problem with this, Will. Uh, Rodney Chapman and Scottie Pippen played 34 minutes. That's you know, that's, that's, I think you look at that as a fan, you're like, okay, that that's, there's not much of a problem with that. Even though you do see guys at other programs, other, especially go, from the guard position, guys are playing almost 40 minutes a game. You know, you've got guys playing 38, 37, you know, especially in a, a game on the road against your rivalry team, 34 minutes is not bad, but again, I think you could have squeezed out two, three, four more minutes from them. And that might've made a difference. Miles Studi, 24 minutes, mostly because of four fouls late that he had. Uh, but again, four fouls, four fouls. Sometimes you gotta say, Hey, you know, we may need to use you as kind of a, a non-factor defensively, but when you're on offense, we need you to put some shots up. Jordan Wright played 29 minutes, QNB 22. You mentioned it, Will. Taryn Frank at 13, Dizoni 5, Lawrence 4, Man 2. But my problem lies in the runs that Tennessee made. Stackhouse, I, I feel like he let it get too out of hand. You know, you saw these runs where Tennessee had gone an 8-0 run, a 10-0 run, even a 12-0 run. And, you know, there was nothing halting the momentum other than, you know, a timeout. They're down. Now they're down over double digits. So I'm not saying this is, you know, this is a problem I have with college basketball in general. I mean, when I'm watching a college basketball game and you've got your main scorer, Scottie Pippen Jr., not out there, and you've also got a guy like Jordan Wright maybe not out there, and you're playing with four guys that really can't score the basketball – that's something obvious, and and <clears throat> I really think that's where Stackhouse has to improve as a coach and saying, hey, how's the rhythm of the game going? I need to feel this out and say, okay, right, I'm calling a timeout. I'm getting Scotty back in there. We're getting a bucket, and we're getting a stop because I really think that hurt them today, Will. And, and he said a quote after the game. He said, the guys can't play 40 minutes. First off, I disagree with that. We've got to get the starters a breather. I get that. We have capable guys. There's a discrepancy there. I, I mean, calling Taryn Frank capable, calling, calling Jermaine Mann capable. I mean, yes, are they capable, but will they do it? They haven't done it. Uh, Frank and Robbins are a bit out of sync right now, and he, and he said rightfully so since they haven't played a lot, and I get that. But <clears throat> I, I have a problem with that, and I know there, there were a lot of fans saying, okay, you got to get, um, you know, you got to get right back in there. I know he had four fouls, but my main problem, Will, is with Pippen out. I know he did play 34 minutes it's, you know, you're hurting, you're only hurting yourself. So I'm not saying that's the reason Vanderbilt lost. I'm never going to point to that, but I'm just saying, I think this game could have gone a lot better, especially with some of the runs Tennessee made in Stackhouse being able to halt those runs. It feels like he, he might let it play out a little bit too long. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with that, Will. And I know Rick Barnes after the game, you know, he was talking about, I can't tell you how much respect I have for Stackhouse. And, and, you know, he came into a tough situation. As long as he's there, they're going to keep getting better. Again, that, that's that's a high praise from from a really good coach. And this, I'm not ripping Stackhouse by any means, but I do think that's something as a head coach he can improve on. So that that's kind of where I'm at with that. <laughs> yeah, you you know, I, I think we disagree a little bit on this. I don't have any problem with the actual minutes. I don't have any problem with the minutes that these guys played. I think probably 32, 33 minutes. I think tired basketball is not good basketball. I think that's why you see this team go on the shooting stretches where they struggle combined with Stackhouse's 
player usage is I think they're tired. I think their legs are tired in the second half of games and coming back out. And you're just going to have those stretches because shooting is going to really be shooting and defense, but especially shooting are going to mm-hmm. be the first things to go when, when you're tired, when those legs right. go. But where I have the issue with stack is, is the usage of guys. You have to always have probably two guys that you would consider scores out there mm-hmm. that the defense has to focus on. And a lot of times Vanderbilt before Chapman came back, only had one guy that I would really consider a scorer, especially early in the season total on the whole roster. Right. And to really be a successful offense, you have to have two guys that the defense is worried about because they can't just focus on one score and it's going to cause their help to be a little confused and guys shifting and pressure. It's going to open things up for everyone. So stack will go on stretches where not only does he have, one score out there he'll have really no scores out yep. there because pippen's really the only bona fide score that they have and then it goes jordan wright if he's playing well number two number three chapman if he's playing well and then number four miles studi if he's playing well maybe eventually robbins can get there but really those are the guys that you have to find offense from and sometimes stack will have it be jordan wright who's already having an off game and Liam Robbins, and that'll be it. And then other than that, you have really no offensive weapons out there. And when he sees a lineup not working, it's fine to put out a lineup that struggles for two minutes or a minute and a half or three minutes. That's fine. But he will leave the same team out there and only utilize the TV timeout to have an actual dead ball to discuss anything going on with the team. That's my problem. He needs to be a little bit more liberal with his timeout usage. I don't really understand why when he sees the runs happening, you know, you'll see the team be down to go on an 0 to 7 run the other team mm-hmm. will go on a 7 0 run against vanderbilt and stack still won't call the timeout right and then it'll be another two minutes of tv timeout then the lineup will change but at that point it's a 13 0 run mm-hmm. well that's a lot worse than a 7 0 run and that's a lot harder to come yeah. back from so i'm not sure what he's saving these timeouts for for billy it would be interesting we're not gonna be able to pick his brain on this especially <laughs> during the season but what are these timeouts being used for at the end of the game because i really don't see them utilized at the end yeah. of the game very yeah. effectively at least to the point that they are worth not putting a halt to these opponents' runs in the early second half or in the middle of the first half. I don't see the benefit of these timeouts at the end of the game, which I think is what he's trying to do. But I don't think the cost-benefit analysis is there. I think he'd be better off putting a halt to these runs and kind of cutting them off at the head as opposed to letting this team play through, especially when you're coming down the last five, six games of the season. And at the same time, Will, I think the the main problem here is that Vanderbilt doesn't have the horses. They, they, you know, we've talked about that a lot and, 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 you know, that as much as we, as, you know, as many of the fans would as well, like to see two scores in there at all times. Sometimes you just can't do that, <laughs> especially with this it's team <laughs> this, this year right now. Um, but I think down the stretch, Will, if, if this was an SEC tournament game, I think, you know, you might have seen Pippen play 37, 38 minutes. You might have seen Chapman get up there close to 40. But I think right now with this still being, you still got, what five games left, you know, this, and it's not a make or break. See, it's not like Vanderbilt is, you know, seven, eight games above 500 on the bubble. So I I think it's, those are small things, Will, that, that I looked at in this game and said, okay, I still think that's something that, that can be adjusted by this staff. And I think they will. I think, you know, this, everything, everyone in this program is learning. They're still learning uh, how to get these wins. And we've talked about it. Will Tennessee from both of our perspectives is simply a better team. I also did think though, Will, Van, they, they didn't make winning plays, but I'll say this. The gap is closing. The, the gap on Vanderbilt and not just Tennessee, but also Kentucky. And, and if they battle against Auburn, I think that'll continue to close. But, you know, for, even though they lost that game, 
I still think the gap is closing and there is improvement. There, there is visible improvement. Maybe, maybe not in the, there is improvement in the win column, but I also see it through my eyes, my own eyes watching this team play on, on the television. And, and okay, I, I can visibly see this team, you know, making those plays, but there's still a lot of plays to be made. And, and there were some plays left out there uh, for Vanderbilt. And, and of course, they wanted to get this win as much as anyone else did, any other Vanderbilt fans, but, you know, obviously it didn't happen. So, uh, but well, now they go to Auburn on Wednesday night. So that should be interesting. Yeah. And there's one more, a couple of individual guys that I want to point out here. And, and number one, which I don't think is getting enough credit because he's not the biggest offensive producer on this team, but Miles Studi is shooting the lights out of the ball. He's shooting almost 44% from three this year. That's not a fluke anymore. That's not a little hot streak anymore. The dude is a knockdown shooter and Vanderbilt has not had that. And at his size at six foot seven, and he's especially he I think get he's what, a sophomore. Man, yeah. he is going to be a weapon next year combined with Noah Shelby mm-hmm. and Lee Dort and Colin Smith. Miles Studi is going to be a guy next season that is going to really be able to do what he wants to do, which is just spot up on the outside because you'll have offensive creators yep. around him that really you only have Pippen really this year yeah. and a little bit of Jordan Wright when he's really on his game. But Maybe Chapman. Listen, yeah. to the, listen to these three points. Yeah, but Chapman's a ball handler. I don't really consider him like an offensive playmaker. Right, he can knock right. down a shot, but he's not going to one-on-one ISO and score right, for right. you and drive and kick and create. But he's a yeah. good secondary ball handler, steady hand. Mm-hmm. But Miles Studi, the last games against Tennessee, was 5 for 8, 62.5%. Against Missouri, two of five, forty percent. Against LSU, five of eight, sixty, almost sixty-three percent. Kentucky got no three-point attempts because, of course, the foul trouble. O for O, no points. Of course, Vanderbilt lost that game. Yeah. Georgia, three of five, sixty percent. South Carolina, where they lost, you only got two attempts from the three-point line. Shot one or two. Then you have the Florida game that they lost. He's one of five. Didn't shoot so hot. Vanderbilt loses to Florida. Against Tennessee, relatively tight game. He's only two of four, fifty percent. Georgia, two of four. UK, two of four. And then the South Carolina game, four of seven. Arkansas, two of eight. What I'm getting at, he has to be in that seven to eight three point shot range. And there seems to be a pretty direct correlation of this team playing what we would consider a tighter game and or winning the game than I think we would expect. Yeah. First, this team losing a game, I don't think we would want them to lose or them performing worse than we would expect. That's pretty directly correlated to Miles Studi. And one more guy is Shane Dizoni. He hasn't shot a lot of threes. The dude's shooting like 60% from the three-point line this year. He's only shooting like one. He's only shot two threes in the last six games, and he's two at two. But he's shooting like 60%. And he's playing this five or six. He needs to look for a shot a little more and see, okay, is this just because he's only shooting these shots in these perfect scenarios? Or is maybe he a little bit of a better shooter than he's getting credit for inside of this offense? Because you're utilizing Trey Thomas pretty heavy. I like the quick release. I like when he gets hot, but he's shooting about 31% this year. And Mm -hmm. at this point in the year, that's once again, you're getting to where the percentages aren't flukes anymore. They're not just a cold streak. He's a 31% free throw or three-point shooter. Miles Studi's a 44% three-point shooter. Those two numbers, that 13% is the difference in winning and losing. And right now you need to target your three-point shots, which like we always say, Vanderbilt shoots a lot of three-point shots and they don't necessarily make a lot of three-point shots. So you need to get your shooter shots. And right now the only guy that is really consistently knocking those down is Miles Studi. So he better be an offensive focus the last six games of the season because if he gets seven to ten three-point shot attempts a game, they're in good shape. I think I think this team's in good shape to win four of these last five 
uh, uh, after this Auburn I'm with game. You. I'm the with Auburn you. game is going to be a tough matchup, though. No doubt about it. And they will uh, tip off at 8 o'clock Central time on Wednesday night. Auburn's only lost two games this season. Uh, of course, they lost to Arkansas, a team that Vanderbilt beat. They're 11-1 and in the SEC. Uh, that'll be on SEC Network in the jungle uh, in Auburn, Alabama. But, Will, one more thing before we get to Riley LaChance here and, and on Vanderbilt. I, Will, watching this team, they look different. They look different this year from an overall organization standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, from a teamwork and chemistry standpoint, from a confidence standpoint and, and showing energy and, 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 you know, just working together as a team. I, I think you see that with Miles Studi and some of the shots he made and barking at the Tennessee bench. You, you didn't see that last year. You didn't see that raw emotion from some of these guys after huge plays. Uh, you know, there weren't many plays to, to to talk too much after last season. But at the same time, I think this team has a lot more swagger this season. They've got confidence and they do believe they believe they're a top half team in this conference. And that can still happen. That that can still it's amazing what season. even a little bit of what a little bit of winning will do, Billy. It's what amazing. A little bit of winning, winning cures will do for everything. Confidence, yeah. Big uh, big winning all. guy, and Riley actually talked Huge about that. Uh, <laughs> big uh, big wins guy, but yeah, well, that that's that's the recap. And Tennessee beats Vanderbilt. Uh, Tennessee will actually play Kentucky tomorrow night, so that that should be an interesting one. Tennessee is a really good team. Vanderbilt is is growing. They're learning. They're growing, and they're slowly improving. And that's, I think, where we're at with this team, Will. So they'll play Auburn on Wednesday night. But Will, coming up. I do up, want to give the update on the standings yep. there, Billy. Vandy's sitting in ninth. Standings update, so they're, yes. they're sitting, so, in, sitting in ninth Sitting in right ninth. Now. Okay. Yep. So Vanderbilt in ninth place right now. Are they in a tie? Are they in sole Let possession of ninth place? Let me pull up the place? full standings here. I just had them. I just had that as a note written down. I got Tennessee is a – they're in fourth, if I'm not mistaken. They could be in third. Okay, here we go. So Vanderbilt is sitting tied with South Carolina, but of course South Carolina has the tiebreak over Vanderbilt at five and seven. Mississippi State a half game back of them, and then they're one game back of both of Florida, Alabama, and LSU. So they're one game out of basically tie, a tie for fifth, mm-hmm. and then they're one game ahead of Missouri or half a game ahead of Missouri, one game ahead of Texas A&M, two games ahead of Ole Miss. And then they are four games ahead of Georgia. So they've got a tiny little bit of separation from those last two teams. But really, like we said, they can fall as low as sitting at 12th in the conference, or they could easily work themselves up to being fifth in the conference. And both Mm -hmm. of those, with what they have remaining, are unbelievably realistic. And I think that we don't know which direction. And I don't think we've had in a long time either direction, good or bad a team that has this much variation in how we might feel at the end of this season with this little time remaining on the schedule. Yeah. You've got Auburn and then you've got, you know, a a bunch of teams that you can beat. (laughs) Like the A&M, you've got Bama, both at home. You've got at Mississippi state, you've got Florida at home, and then you've got at Ole Miss. So you have very, 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 very winnable games. You've got two of the teams that are below you on that schedule which is so incredible. two teams that i mean that's that's where you're sitting at. that's the improvement that they've made yep. and and they're out of the cellar at least right now they are out of that first night of the sec tournament which is good news and but they could get right back in it if they lose you know three of these last games or you know lose a couple so it could go a lot of a, a couple of different ways and that'll vary so well i'm with you we haven't had this much variation in a long time but we also have Riley Lachance coming up here on the Door Report. He was a Vanderbilt guard from 2014 to 2018. 
Well, I, I don't know if you're the same way. He was one of my favorite guys to watch going into Memorial Gym, uh, just watching him shoot the ball. Uh, he, he was pure. And so to get his perspective of a great high school player, he talked about the recruiting process coming down here to Nashville after not being recruited by Marquette in Wisconsin, some of his hometown teams. Uh, he made – he had 14,000 – no, I'm kidding, 1,400 points in his yeah. career. <laughs> but, Will, it was interesting getting his perspective on playing overseas for a few years and now coming back to America, to the States. Now he's playing in Birmingham, and who knows? We could see Riley LeChance in the NBA here in the next couple of years if all goes well, uh, I mean, it, it affiliated with the Pelicans. So, uh, But we've got Riley coming up. It was really cool to, to check up with him, Will. Yeah, he. I love shooters. So he was obviously one of my favorite guys that, that played in black and gold. We've got to interview two of them in a row that were actually from yep. the same class here with Riley LeChance, who's actually the number 122 player nationally. He was actually a four star. So he was the four 31st star. shooting guard. And okay. then at 128 was Matthew Fisher Davis, who was a three star. So that's how thin that line of separation is is matthew fisher davis the 128th player nationally was a three-star the 122nd player nationally in riley chance was a four-star according to the 24 7 composite but the other interesting thing i didn't even realize this but in the same class this closely ranked the to those guys was wade baldwin was also a three-star in this class the number 131 player wow. so they had three of the guys from 120 122 to 131 they had three guys in that class that all turned out to be very, very productive guys for multiple years on that roster. That was a hell of a class. It was a great class. 20, it was, yeah. and they were fun to watch. Was it was a really good recruiting class, and, and Riley was a big part of that. And he, he was a part of a, a coaching change as well from Kevin Stallings mm -hmm. to Bryce Drew. So just like Matthew talked about it, I think he, they were a little bit different. On the, What do you got? Okay, I'm sorry, man. This is fascinating. I'm just looking at this as you're talking, but Shelton Mitchell – that's so random. Oh, yeah. He was actually higher ranked than all three of those guys I just named really? off. He was in the same class. Was, he was a four-star, the 93rd ranked He was player a big-time get. He was a big-time get yeah, at that Which is at funny. That so there we go. We talk about getting excited about the recruiting rankings, right? <laughs> and there we go. So there's there's the three guys that we named off that were all below him, that were all were unbelievably productive players and some of the best yeah. we've seen in probably the last decade. And <laughs> They were all ranked below Shelton Mitchell. So yeah. take everything so, we're saying about the recruiting rankings, take all that with a grain of salt, because we're all just guessing. We're Even all, the scouts, they're just guessing. Guess. We've got ratings, we've got stars, but yep. at, the, at the end of the day, it's how you develop as a player. And, and a lot of it's on coaching. So with recruits coming in under stack, a lot of that could happen. And I think it will happen. And you'll get guys coming in here, and then you'll have momentum. You'll start stacking classes. So, Will, it, we talked a lot of recruiting. But at the same time, we got into Riley's career and his perspective on the decision earlier this season from the administration to ban students from the two biggest home games. So we got into it all with Riley LaChance, the sharpshooter. Stay tuned. We've got Mr. LaChance coming right up here on the Door Report, powered by Alaco Fine Wood Floors. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back into the Door Report. Alongside Will Byram, I'm Billy Derrick, and we are honored to welcome in Riley LaChance to the podcast. He is 
Of course, a former Vanderbilt sharpshooter from 2014 to 2018. The Brookfield, Wisconsin native came to Vandy from Brookfield Central High School, where he averaged 23 points per game. He was named an All-State selection there. He left Vanderbilt uh, over 14,000 points, which ranks 15th on Vanderbilt's all-time scoring list. He finished with 423 career assists. That's tied for sixth on the Commodore's all-time list. He made 263s in his career, which ranks him seventh all-time in Commodore history. So he's in he's in the record books uh, for, for Vanderbilt men's basketball, and he's currently playing for the Birmingham Squadron, uh, the New Orleans Pelicans G League affiliate. So we'll uh, we'll talk a lot. Uh, about this year's season for him in the G League, but also uh, focus a little bit on uh, this year's basketball team. But Riley, thanks for taking the time, man. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Riley, I, I want to start with with you and, and where you're at in your career right now, because I, I think, you know, the, the G League has been a, a changing uh, scenario for players. I think there, there used to be a little bit more eyes on it maybe five, six years ago, but now I think there's been some changes within the system and, and how NBA teams work within their G League teams. But I saw we were averaging nine points games, shooting 34% from deep. So uh, what's that experience been like and your recent journey to uh, back to America and, and back to the G League? Yeah, uh, so this is my first season uh, in the G League. Uh, my first three years, I was overseas. I uh, started my rookie year in Poland, uh, then Belgium, and then I was in the Netherlands for a couple months last year uh, after a, a long break because of COVID. But uh, yeah, and then uh, when this opportunity prevented itself, uh, presented itself, excuse me, uh, you know, late summer, early fall, um, you know, I was definitely excited about it. Um, thought it was a new challenge for me. Uh, try something I've obviously never done before and uh, I was definitely excited to say stateside as well so um, you know it's been a it's been a, a great experience so far uh, obviously with uh, the the COVID uh, being so still so prevalent uh, you know we've had a fluctuating roster so that's been a a challenge uh, a nice opportunity to see guys you know meet a bunch of new guys and, and see them go up and achieve their dreams as well so it's definitely motivating as well so um, you know it's been a, it's been a great experience so far. Yeah, great to have you back in, uh, in the U.S. here, but I want to take one step back and, and go back to playing over in Europe and overseas because I think, yeah. you know, people like me and Billy and, and fans and other people here, guys all the time, they went and played overseas. So to just kind of take us through what that was like as in detail or as broadly as you want and kind of how that happens and kind of how you bounced around. I know you played in three different leagues, like you mentioned. Yeah, so I played in a, a different league each of my uh, first three years and you know, after college, uh, you know, there's a bunch of agents and uh, stuff like that. So you kind of almost go through the recruiting process almost all over again. And, uh, you know, I ended up settling on an agent. And from that point, you know, going into my rookie season, you know, you don't, you don't know a whole lot about, you know, there's so many different leagues, obviously so many different countries that have basketball. So, you know, you don't know a whole lot going in your first year. So, um, you know, I went to Poland my first year, um, was had a really up and down season. Um, and, you know, that was my first time ever being out of the country. So, you know, getting off that that long flight and going to a place that felt like a whole different world was definitely a challenge. And, uh, you know, Belgium uh, my, for my second season in the Netherlands uh, last season uh, felt a little more more comfortable and a little more like America. And, um, you know, I, I felt like I, I, I fit better in those two places. But, you know, it's definitely a, a challenge, definitely. Uh, you know, long seasons that can be up to as long as 10 months. So uh, it's, it, it's been a, a quite a ride so far, and which is now my fourth year. 
Riley, I want to go back to, you talked about the recruiting process. You had to go through it again, but I want to go back to your original, the first recruiting process you went through in high school, being a kid from Wisconsin. I think a lot of people might've been surprised to see you head down South uh, to the SEC and play in Nashville. But at the time, Vanderbilt basketball was, you know, they were at the top of that SEC uh, under coach Stallings. So uh, what drew you to Vanderbilt? Uh, I know this was a, a while ago, but what, what drew you to Vanderbilt coming out of high school and, and maybe what, how did they compare to some of the other teams you were looking at out of that recruiting process? Yeah, so I get that question a lot, but, uh, you know, Marquette and Wisconsin, the two uh, hometown schools never really recruited me. Um, you know, I did a couple, you know, unofficial visits there and stuff like that, but they never offered me a scholarship or anything like that. So um, from there, I was, you know, really open to anything. Uh, and uh, obviously, like you said, at that time, they were they were on ESPN. It felt like they were on ESPN, you know, Super Tuesday every week. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I can remember when high school, before I even really knew what or where uh, Vanderbilt was, <laughs> I, I can remember watching John Jenkins and Jeff Taylor and Festus and all those guys on ESPN uh, and seeing the crazy arena and how different it was. So uh, just like that. And, you know, it felt like they were always winning at that point, you know, during those big games. So uh, that's kind of when I first became familiar with them. And then obviously, uh, when I was offered a scholarship by them, I continued to dig a little deeper and, uh, you know, felt a, a good bond with the coaching staff at that time. And when I came on my visit, uh, really enjoyed the players, enjoyed the city of Nashville, enjoyed campus. Um, and, and it just seemed like a really good fit for that mix of academics and, and uh, obviously high level athletics in the SEC as well. You mentioned the coaching staff, and I know Billy wanted to go here, and I think he has something written down in our notes that we kind of go over beforehand on questions that we want to get to, but I'm going to steal it from him here. Um, uh, you went through a coaching staff transition. What was it with Kevin Stallings that brought you in? And then what were the differences there that you saw um, once his, his tenure was ended there and you moved on to Coach Bryce Drew? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely never something you anticipate going into committing to a school and starting your career there. Um, and it's definitely something we didn't anticipate with, you know, I think our freshman year was coach selling 16th or 17th season, something like that. So, you know, definitely something we didn't see coming, but, um, you know, I really liked when I came on my visit, I really liked the, the environment that they built for their players. Um, it seemed like a real family environment. Um, I really got along with all the assistant coaches, everybody involved with the program. And, uh, again, uh, I really enjoyed the players as well. I think that's a big thing. You know, when you when you come into a school, do you enjoy the guys on the visit? Do you enjoy hanging out with the guys? Could you see them playing? Could you could you see yourself playing with those guys? Could you see yourself hanging off the court with those guys? So um, I really like those guys, you know, Damian, Luke, uh, Shelby at the time, all those Josh, all those guys. So, um, you know, that, that was a big thing for me. Um, and then going into uh, Coach Drew's staff. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like I said, we something we never saw coming. Uh, obviously, towards the end of our, my sophomore season, we didn't finish the way we wanted to. That that year didn't go the way anybody wanted to or, or expected to. So, um, you know, at the end of the season, we heard some maybe rumors. But, you know, we, we thought, you know, that's all it was, was rumors. And it all kind of happened super quick. Um, so that, you know, but I, I think Coach Drew did a good job coming in and making that, that uh, transition real easy for us. Uh, for me, he was the easy guy to play for. And, um, you know, he, he did a good job of, you know, at that time we had a little bit of an older team. So, you know, we had, you know, guys who had played a lot of minutes as sophomores, juniors, and, and you know, Luke and Nolan were going to be seniors that season. So, um, you know, he did a good job of, uh, 
you know, making that transition easy for us. And, and he asked us a lot of questions, relied heavily on us. So um, that transition, uh, they did a good job making that easy, him and his staff. Riley, I want to go to kind of the trajectory of Vanderbilt basketball while you were there. Your four years, it was quite a roller coaster. I mean, the beginning, of course, you're playing under Stallings, and then you move into Bryce Drew. But how tough is it for not just as a player, but as a group of guys being in the same class as Matthew and Jeff and and even playing with Damian and Luke and those kind of guys? How difficult was it to you know, you got, there were some expectations, you know, there were expectations for your class, their expectations, those first couple of years. And then coach Drew comes in, you said you struggled that last year, a little bit there as a team with Stallings that, that la- his last year there, how tough is it to maintain those expectations and live up to those, not necessarily as a player, but as a group, especially at a school like Vanderbilt in the sec, because I think now what you're seeing is, you know, you got, it's, it takes long to rebuild, it, uh, rebuilding yeah. a, a program is tough. So how would you describe kind of the challenge of, of maintaining kind of that reputation of, Hey, you know, we, we still think we're at the top echelon of sec teams, even though we may not, we may be in a rebuild right now. Sure. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, one thing coach Stallings did a good job is, is of is, you know, finding his guys and finding guys that fit his system, fit Vanderbilt's culture. And, um, you know, those are guys who are there for two, three, four years. And, you know, it, it seemed like every year uh, under his uh, tenure, you know, there was a guy who was there, maybe didn't play much as a sophomore, but as a junior, he really started to shine. Or a guy who didn't play much as a junior, but as a senior, he really started to shine. And I think that's a huge key for Vanderbilt, uh, you know, getting those three, four-year guys who you can develop, who will be there for a while, who can really buy into the culture. And I think you're seeing that now with Coach Stackhouse. You know, he's got guys who have improving every single year and guys who are sticking around for a little longer. And that's going to be huge for a rebuild. Obviously, you know, in today's day and age with all the transfer rules, that's going to be a little bit tougher and it's not going to be probably as common. So um, that's going to present another challenge. But um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, managing those expectations is tough. I mean, it's, you know, I think my, my freshman year, we, we had a decent uh, non-conference season, but our, our schedule wasn't all that tough. And then we went in, uh, won our first uh, SEC game against Auburn. And we, you know, we had a bunch of young guys, you know, we had James was our only senior. And then we had uh, uh, a bunch of freshmen and sophomores playing. And that was about it. So, you know, we beat Auburn. We were kind of maybe feeling ourselves a little bit. And then we went on and lost seven in a row. And I think it was at that point, everybody realized like winning in that league, uh, winning at high major division one basketball is really, really, really tough. Right. Cause everybody's fighting for their lives. Everybody's fighting for their jobs. And obviously, you know, I don't think there's ever a question of, you know, anybody on our team or in our program, if we wanted to win, everybody wanted to win. I mean, we were miserable losing, going on those some of those losing streaks that we did. And we were, you know, doing everything we could and working so hard to get out of it. But you got to realize at the same time, you know, those five guys on the court against you and that whole program on the other side is fighting for their lives, fighting for their uh, relevancy, fighting for their jobs and winning at that level is hard because everybody wants to win. Everybody's livelihood depends on it. So, you know, you lose, lose a couple of games and, you know, it feels like the world's coming down on you, but, you know, it, it's definitely tough to manage those expectations. And, you know, my, I know my sophomore year, we struggled with that a little bit. And, uh, you know, luckily we had a, a, a stretch during the middle of the season where, you know, we were able to figure that out a little bit and get some, get some big wins. Yeah, you mentioned the improvement that that you might have seen seen under Stack. So just before we start discussing anything to do with Stack or this season, how much of this team have you been able to watch, and and how much have you been able to see of Stack in, in general? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't watched a ton. Um, you know, I've caught some of the, you know, I watched a little bit of the Tennessee game the other night and um, caught some of the other games. But um, I, I try to watch whenever I can, whenever they're on uh, national TV, obviously, and, and we don't have a game or practice or something like that. But, you know, being being here in the States, I've been able to watch a little more this year than I have in the past couple of seasons. Riley, I, I was thinking about bringing this up, but I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and bring it up because I know this was back in January, early January uh, when, when the mandate or I guess you call it a mandate, but the, the basically the Vanderbilt administration banning students from attending the home games, two biggest home games against Kentucky and Tennessee. And I know when you played at Vanderbilt, those were always packed. And I know they gave you guys a boost there, especially having students there. Um, but you tweeted, you said the biggest game the program has had in years and students can't even go. The staff and players have clearly worked tirelessly to try to bring Memorial Magic back. They deserve better. And we're just going to let Kentucky fans buy all those tickets. Make it make sense. I thought that was perfect. Um, Will and I 100% agreed with you on that. And so, Riley, as an alum, w- were you surprised that dis- that by that decision? And what what kind of what were some of your thoughts that went into that that tweet there in January? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I know we've everybody's you know, made COVID a whole political thing. But for me, it wasn't a political thing or anything like that. I just felt so bad for this staff and these 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 players who have clearly, you know, over the last three years worked to make the product on the court a lot better. And I think everybody's been able to realize that and see that. And, you know, at that point, you know, they had, you know, just beat Arkansas on the road, had had some uh, some rhythm, had were trending in the right direction. And uh, I think that, you know, going into those games, uh, traditionally, I mean, what Tennessee and Kentucky are both like three hours away. So traditionally you got a lot of their fans at the game, mm-hmm. no matter what. Right. But the thing that, you know, is so big in Memorial is getting a huge student presence because, you know, a lot of, you know, obviously Vanderbilt's a huge school. So, uh, a great school. So a lot of these alums go to New York, go to LA, go to Chicago and work at these huge fortune 500 companies. So they don't have a huge a lot I mean, obviously they have a big alumni base in Nashville right but they have a lot a big alumni base a lot of places so um you know getting student and those uh alumni you know first you know four or five years out you know they are going to move different places so they're not coming back and coming to these games so having a huge student section really makes or breaks the difference in uh creating that atmosphere at Memorial and when that student section is full you know I, I can remember some games we had there some Florida games some Kentucky games some Tennessee games, it really makes all the difference and it makes the arena seem louder. It makes it seem more full and it really drowns out the sound of those Tennessee and Kentucky fans. So that uh, I know that I knew that made all the difference. And, uh, you know, obviously I think you saw it was a close game and, you know, I think that definitely could have made a difference in some of those games, especially with those Kentucky and Tennessee fans, you know, being some of them, you know, I saw some of them in the front row. So, you know, I know that had to be tough. And like I said, I just, it was nothing political or opinionated or anything like that. I just felt for the players and coaches who, you know, worked so hard just coming off a big win at Arkansas, which is a really, really, really good win and wanted to have a huge home win, have a, have the crowd behind them against two really tough opponents, two rivals. And, uh, you know, I, I was disappointed in that decision. Yeah, I just want to say yeah. one thing, what he said that was perfect there, Billy, which is before you go to whatever question you were going to ask next here, but what we kept saying is, is you don't have to even give your political opinion on either side to say, this just sucks. And this right. is awful. And that, and that's what I think me and Billy tried to do. And so I think you laid that out a lot better than even we did on the actual podcast yeah. of this, you know, just whatever perspective you're coming from, you can objectively look at it and say, this is just not good. This is not ideal. And, yeah. and this is just a terrible situation to be in. 
Yeah. And I think the toughest thing is, you know, from what I've heard and, you know, I don't, I'm not super, super connected back in Nashville these days, but you know, it didn't, it, it seemed like it obviously didn't come from a, a, a decision from the athletic department. So, you know, that's, and, you know, I feel like that's always been a struggle over, over the years is getting that support from the main administration. And, um, you know, obviously I, I understand there's liability and stuff, all that stuff, but, you know, it, it, I, I just really felt for the players and, you know, I know everybody from the athletic department and the basketball program players. I know the students wanted to be there, you know, that's two games. That's two huge games, two huge opponents. And, you know, I, I felt bad for everybody involved and yeah. I, I would have been very disappointed as a player. I know that. Yeah. They showed it against Georgia where the students packed it out. A Georgia team that's at the bottom of the sec. So we talked right. about that. You know, they, they showed up. So Riley, you, you talked about games in your career that were big. One game stands out to me. I was actually at this game uh, sitting behind the basket. You hit this game winner in, it was a Mississippi state game. And, and, I think a lot of people look back at your career. They look at a lot of really good performances, uh, especially, you know, had some big ones in the SEC tournament as well. But what do you remember particularly about that game winner, the look you got, uh, kind of the game as a whole? Does that stand out to you in, in your career at Vanderbilt? Yeah, I mean, it, I, some something I remember about that game is, you know, maybe with five or six minutes left, I thought we had a chance to maybe win by 15 or 16. I mean, we were playing really well that game. And, it kind of all collapsed in the last, whatever, eight, 10 minutes. And uh, I, I think, you know, there was a point when, you know, they had just hit a couple of big shots. I, I, if I remember correctly, they, they hit a bunch of threes towards the end of the game. And, you know, it almost seemed like, you know, we had that feeling that, you know, we felt a couple of times that season of, oh my gosh, we just let this one slip away again. And, uh, you know, I know they're shooting free throws and uh, somebody, uh, one of the guys shooting free throws on their team, like, made a little gesture to the crowd after he hit one and uh, you know, you know, telling the crowd to be quiet. And then he missed the second one and that, that gave us an opportunity. We knew what we were running off the, off the free throw. And we had actually ran the same play uh, the possession before. And I think Saban got a lo- uh, easy layup off it. So, uh, you know, Peyton threw it to head, threw it ahead to me. And, you know, it was a play we practiced a hundred times throughout the season, uh, end of the game play. And, you know, I kind of felt the guy come off me, uh, and, and go to Peyton, who I was actually supposed to hand the ball to. And actually before that play, I said, you know, Peyton, I'm probably going to give this to you, look, and you're going to have a wide open look. And I felt him come off me, so I just turned around and shot it. And, uh, yeah, it's it all that's good. Come off history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've got to ask, what is is that your favorite game? This may be tough. I mean, you had a four-year career there. Is that your favorite game in black and gold, or, or what is the one that sticks out that is your favorite game in your career at Vanderbilt? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one's up there, but I, I think my favorite one is definitely the Florida game in the SEC tournament my junior year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we that year we it felt like we overcame so much to put us in a position to uh, make the tournament. You know, we and we, we we battled our way back, and you know, at that point, you know, we were probably in the tournament, win or lose against Florida for the third. It was our third time playing them. They were a ranked team, so you know, we were. You know, you always hear the. The, the saying it's hard to beat a team three times and, and it really is but you know we, we felt good going into that game and that was another game where you know we we started off slow uh fought back and in the second half they took the lead by I think 10 or 12 and and we fought back again and uh got it into overtime and you know I, I think at that point just with the stakes of that game and that game pretty much cementing us to make the NCAA tournament that year and uh you know I, I remember uh, obviously, it was at Bridgestone that year, and um, 
my first couple of years in the tournament, you know, we, we, my first two years, we, we lost the first game right away. So, um, you know, seeing that, you know, and it felt like at that, at that time, that was the, you know, there's a bunch of black and gold in the arena and we could hear the black and gold chants in a, in a, in a, a pro arena like Bridgestone, that, that, that atmosphere was just awesome. And, uh, you know, I'll definitely never forget that game. I thought, I thought Jeff's dunk was the silencer. It was that kind yeah, of how I mean, that, I mean, I, I've, I remember after that season and even like getting together with some of the guys, uh, you know, we always talk about that play and that dunk and like what rewatch it back. And, uh, I mean, that was, that was incredible. And his reaction and everybody on the bench's reaction right behind him was, uh, is definitely something we'll never forget. And I think that was the most emotion you'd seen Jeff make, uh, all his whole career at Vandy. In, 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 yeah, uh, for in, sure. Definitely on the court. Off of it, I've seen a little more, but on, <laughs> on the court. On the court, that's definitely definitely might be the most. Riley, let's. Uh, I, I want to ask you one more here before we let you go. Thanks, thanks again for coming on, though. Uh, yeah. But what we, Will and I talk about the steps of getting Memorial Magic back, and yeah, you know, I think we saw a little bit of it uh, in the LSU game during. Uh, you know, the, obviously Shane Foster was being honored, uh, and we like yeah. to ask this to people. But from your perspective as an alum, and and the success the success you had there, and your perspective as a player, and seeing success success making the tournament. What are the steps in your mind that must be taken by the coaches, players, this whole program in order to bring Memorial Magic, not, you know, not back for one game, not a string of games, yeah. but, but all the way back to where you guys had it. And, and it was, you know, nobody wanted to play Memorial Gym. Yeah. I mean, obviously winning cures all right. So, you know, the more you win, the more people are going to show up, the more people are going to come back. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, like I said before, Coach Stackhouse and, and his staff have this have this thing going in the right direction. They've clearly improved a lot over the last three years. Um, you know, I, I don't think you can judge anybody off off of last season just with COVID and you know, guys, one guy playing this game, one guy not playing the next game, whatever it was. You know, I, I think that was an impossible situation for and and they had a young team too, so that was an impossible situation for anybody. So I don't think anybody can be judged judged off that. And, you know, I, I think they've definitely. Uh, made some big strides going into this, this year. They're playing more consistent. They're playing everybody tough. Uh, and, you know, I, I, a little bit of what I talked about before, you know, you got to find those guys that fit that fit Vanderbilt's culture, fit that, fit that environment, because it, it really isn't for everybody, right? You know, they take their academics very seriously. There's a real tight-knit uh, uh, group in, in the Vanderbilt basketball program. And, um, you know, it's not for everybody. So you got to find those guys who want to stick around, who want to be there, who will buy in. And, um, you know, I, I think obviously it takes commitment from uh, administration, from the athletic department, which we've seen. And, you know, I know they just unveiled the new locker room and obviously that's huge keeping up. I mean, some of these facilities in the SEC, whether it's Kentucky, Tennessee, Auburn, like they got, you know, state of the art, everything. So that, you know, and to 16 to 18 year old kids who are getting recruited, like that stuff matters. So, you know, what the making the investments in the facilities and the recruiting budgets and stuff like that is is huge. Um, and, I, and I think it's as much off the court as it is on the court. You know, you got to get fans coming to the games, whether it's going to local high schools and getting high school basketball programs to come, um, giving them whatever tickets so they come and then, OK, now you come, they come to a good game. Now they're interested. Now they're going to come back on their own. Right. You got the biggest thing is you got to get people in the arena but you got to get them to come back so like I said there's not you know a huge you know Vanderbilt graduates go everywhere uh, after graduation so you got to get the local community of Nashville invested you got to get you know kids 
you know, I, I remember I, I've heard, you know, when I was in school, I heard so many kids my age who are like, oh, I've been I've been coming to Vandy games since and watching Shane Foster and watching Matt Fridge, right? So you got to get those young kids who are, uh, you know, just getting into basketball uh, in the Nashville community who are enjoying coming to these games and who want to come back and who enjoy these games. And, uh, you know, that that's that's a, that's a step in the right direction and having the, the, the basketball program, the athletic department and the university uh, all on the same page and, and investing money into it, investing uh, time and effort into the program. And, uh, you know, I, I know I'm confident that that we'll be able to get back to the top of the SEC. Yeah, we'll see what else they got here uh, down the stretch of this season, of course, with a big recruiting class coming up next year. There, there is optimism within the program, and especially from the alums' perspective. Riley, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, good luck rest of the season down in Birmingham. Uh, we'll be trying to watch a little bit more than we had, but uh, thanks again for coming on, and uh, again, good luck rest of the year. Yeah, thank you, guys. I appreciate it.